Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with Brad Edwards, and we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. Today, we're bringing you the second part of our conversation with David French. David is a veteran, a lawyer, and a journalist. He's got a new book out called Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat, and How to Restore Our Nation. In the first part of our conversation, we talked with David about polarization in our country and how partisanship has turned bitter. If you haven't listened to that yet, I'd encourage you to hit pause right now and go back and listen to our previous episode first, where you'll get the first half of our conversation with David. But today, in the second part of our conversation, We wanted to move in a more constructive direction. And so we asked David, what opportunities are there, especially for Christians, to engage in our polarized culture in a way that is positive and proactive? I I know in your book, you talk about federalism as, as your solution, but as pastors of, you know, local churches, uh, I don't feel like I have an enormous amount to contribute to the the project of federalism. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Already surrendering. My but, goodness. <laughs> but we are trying to shepherd people who are, you know, who are engaging um, in these issues at a uh, on, on social media, <laughs> who are uh, experiencing fear, who are watching the presidential debate the other night and going, oh, my gosh, what in the world is happening here? Mm. Um, I mean, just general thoughts on, uh, <laughs> wh- yeah, where do we know, go from here proactively if the, we're not in a, in a position of, you know, influencing the national conversation? So, yeah, I mean, the federalism piece of, um, the book is, is essentially a begging to deescalate national politics mm. by re-empowering self-governance. In other words, making people feel less helpless about their ability to alter the conditions of politics around them. Um, yeah, that's a mega project. That's like a, that's a mega project. Yeah. But the theme of the book really is pluralism, which is both a ma- macro and a micro project. And, and one of the things I talk about are some pretty basic virtues and values. Um, among them, sort of in a practical level, fighting for the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Um, and I'll give you an example that I used in the book. Uh, I've always been a free speech lawyer. Um, I mean, going all the way back to my early college, uh, law school activism, I was a free speech advocate. And so um, over the course of my career, because I ended up working, I've done work on behalf of people who are on the right have lost free speech and on the left. But because over much of my career, I worked for conservative Christian legal organizations, I sort of to the extent I had any public reputation at all, it was defending Christians from universities, mainly. Mm-hmm. And so I became known as like a religious right lawyer. And, and I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened. Uh, so we're all familiar with this concept of of like woke progressive, woke corporate progressive activism and how mm-hmm. intolerant woke corporations can be. And yeah. so nobody batted an eye when I defended James Damore, who was this Google software engineer who was fired after he sort of wrote a libertarian manifesto of how from a more libertarian perspective, Google could diversify. He's fired. Like that's intolerant. It's not a constitutional issue because Google is a private company, but it illustrated a cultural intolerance of free speech. That's Mm. not good for our country. Totally. And so then all of a sudden, all these folks are saying, Oh, look at woke intolerance. When the president of the United States said of Colin Kaepernick, quietly kneeling, peacefully kneeling, fire him. They did. They say, no, we are not for, no, they go, yeah, fire him. 
And one mm. of the interesting things was the uh, how you soften people's hearts when you are a consistent defender of not just your liberty, but their liberty. Mm. It has, it's not just a matter of, oh, I want to be consistent so I'm not dragged for being a hypocrite on Twitter. There's something deep and profound that occurs when you apply e- virtuous principles equally to friends and foes. There is a connection that occurs, a relationship that can be built. So there's sort of the macro piece of that, which is, hey, you know, actually, it's kind of not sustainable to have a polity that says free speech for me and not for thee, because you better win every election or you're kind of screwed. So there's this pragmatic thing. But there's also we neglect the way in which the mutual defense of liberty actually binds us together in a very human way. And so one of the things that I've said is one uh, to how to, you can help depolarize and contribute to pluralism is look for opportunity to defend the rights of others in your own world, whether it's mm-hmm. you have 40 Facebook friends and you, you know, there's something where you can say, hey, guys, I know we normally, you know, I disagree with this person, but he shouldn't be fired. And, you know, you you crack the door open, you know, in 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 your own potential mm. to have relationships. And so I think that's a very important basic principle. And and here's another one. This is uh, uh, comes from, and I also mentioned in the book, as sort of a transcendent moral principle of our American Republic. And it's a phrase that, that George Washington, it's a verse that George Washington mm. referred to almost 50 times in his writing. And it's, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid, as a sort of a principle of the Republic. And I love that. I absolutely love that. It's what he wrote mm. to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island to assure this off this horribly persecuted religious minority that they would have a home in this country. And I and I love that as a principle of engagement that has, it says as a basic level, whatever we disagree on, and we're going to disagree on tax rates, we're going to disagree on a lot of things, but you can sit under your own vine and your own fig tree and no one should make you afraid. And I think it's the violation of that promise that has been some of the worst have has represented some of the worst aspects of the American history and mm-hmm. the extension of that promise has been re, uh, in some of the best aspects of American history. You know, what's so interesting is I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm picking up a thread that's throughout each of these topics we've been talking about. And that is right. The same reason why we have failed to do discipleship around politics in the church. The same reason why we might hesitate to do what you're advocating right there is this kind of idolatry of personal conscience that Mm. says, um, I can't support someone else whose views are different from mine because like that would be encouraging them to do something that I, you know, biblically cannot get behind, or I think it's not for their good. But like, so can me, can you kind of maybe address that objection? Um, Because I I feel like that's a, that is a Mm. recurring roadblock to so many of the the different solutions within white evangelicalism, at least. Yeah. You know, I think that um, this, this, and this is one of the reasons why sort of the tribe of civil libertarians of which I'm one is so darn small (laughs) 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 because there are dozens of us. Dozens. dozens. (laughs) Uh, It's because it is so hard to separate out the liberty from the substance Hmm. and to sort of say, Hey, um, I'm, I, I'm not going to kneel for the national anthem. And, and the reason why, and the reasons why I'm not going to kneel are deep where I have deep and profound differences with your social critique. You know, I, I think you're wrong about some things and, 
And the more people hear from you, the I'm worried they'll be persuaded <laughs> to your point of view. And so this is one of the things that people I think is uh, one of the reasons why people are so much less eager to defend the rights of others is they say, wait a minute, if people listen to you, they might be persuaded that you're that you are wrong. And if if they're mm. persuaded, then the common good or social justice or whatever you say will be set back. And, you know, this is where we get to sort of the argument for free speech itself. And I, I love what Frederick Douglass said back pre-Civil War in his argument for free speech in Boston. He called free speech the the dread of tyrants, the great moral renovator mm. of law and government. Here's a guy speaking against a legally sanctioned violent regime of human subjugation, placing confidence in the ability to persuade. And one of the things that I, I say to I've said to Christians for years and years and years, we people who understand, understand that the gospel is ultimately empowered not by our own eloquence, but by the Holy Spirit of the living God of the universe, hmm. of all people should be the least reluctant to engage in the marketplace of ideas and the least reluctant to confront lovingly, graciously, but with real conviction and energy opposing ideas. And so Amen. that, you know, I, 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 we should not confront the marketplace of ideas with fear. We should not see the marketplace of ideas yeah. as a minefield so much as a mission field. <laughs> and, and that is in, in that confidence. And it, you don't even have to be eloquent. I, one of my favorite stories is, so I, I was admitted to Harvard Law School from Lipscomb University in Nashville, grew up and went to uh, rural public schools and in um, tennis in Kentucky. And when I got admitted to Harvard, I was intimidated, y'all. I was <laughs> intimidated. I had a good that education or college, but I was nervous. And I was especially nervous because I knew I was going to be one of the few Christians there. And I read apologetics books after apologetics book. I, you know, I, I did everything to research and some of the stuff I've even forgotten. So how did we settle on the New Testament canon? And how did, you know, so like I could answer all of these questions. And had all these long, just really, you know, often heartfelt, moving conversations mm. with people um, over coffee late at night while studying. Nobody batted an eye towards becoming a Christian <laughs> as a result of those conversations. Wow. I sure. was so frustrated. And here I am, I'm thinking, I'm just pouring all of my energy. And then we had this, this um, stu fellow student who came in to our Christian fellowship meeting on a Friday night. We met on Friday nights. And she was a brand new believer just brand new believer. And I was like, oh, I want to know how she became a believer so that I can adapt my persuasion tactics accordingly. And she said, um, well, you know, I mean, I talked to Christians in the past. I didn't really believe it. And I was walking through the square and you know, that street preacher is like, you know, one of these like wild eyed guys that stands on the edge. <laughs> he was just yelling over and over again, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And she said, you know what? I thought he's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and part wow. of my part of me was like, oh, well, I feel kind of angry because my argument for Jesus is a lot more detailed than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the Holy mm. Spirit moved in her heart in response to Jesus loves you. Mm. And and like it doesn't take a Harvard JD mm. to say Jesus loves you. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that story has always encouraged me about the power of the gospel um, without the necessity. Now, that's not to say that we should just 
not care how we come across, you know, whatever. Sure, but, sure. But the power of the gospel should give us such confidence approaching yeah. the public square. Wow. Yeah, because if you can, if you are, if you can preach that bad of a sermon, or even the worst sermon, which yeah, we talked Bryce about. Was talking we talked about, about Jonah a couple weeks ago <laughs> preaching the worst sermon in human history. In forty days, you're going to be destroyed. Leads to the the most remarkable revival. One hundred twenty thousand oh, people are converted. I have a better story even than the the woman the woman who and she has gone on to just become just a wonderful woman of believer and and doing wonderful things in our nation and her community. Anyway, we had another woman come in. She was an international student, an LLM, to our, our law school fellowship. And she comes in and she starts weeping. Okay, she's weeping. And we talked to her and we're like, what's going on? And she said, I've never been around so many Christians in my life. That was the first thing she said. And this is our small Harvard Law School Christian. <laughs> it's fellowship. not what Christians at Harvard are used to hearing, I'm guessing. No. We're, yeah, that's we're not evangelical thinking, Mecca. No, we're used to thinking, look how brave our smallberry band is. <laughs> But she had come from outside Beijing and had never been able to be in, this is early 90s, had never been able to be in any sort of Christian fellowship of any size at all. And we asked her how she became a Christian. And she said, well, I spent, when I was a kid, I would always go out into the fields outside of our village and I would look up at the skies and I would meditate. And I would meditate every night. And one night I'm meditating and I heard a shortwave radio from one of the other houses. And I heard the name of Jesus out of the radio and immediately knew who I'd been speaking to my whole life. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. Um, Yeah, But if, if the Democrats win though, we (laughs) won't, that will never happen again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So David, uh, gosh, uh, this is going to seem like a shift in some ways, but I, I, you set this up really well, because if if we can have confidence in the gospel and that the Holy Spirit is able to be persuasive in the midst of the marketplace of ideas, let's talk about maybe the idea that has become such a crazy buzzword in the last six months. I can Let me even set this up like this about, I think this was 2020. It, it feels like about four years ago, but it was before everything shut down sure. with COVID. Somebody in my church... Uh, wanted to take me out to lunch and he kind of sat me down somewhat accusatorily and said, I need to know what our church's position is on critical race theory. Oh boy. And I said, what is that? <laughs> and um, I've, I love you know, I love we've all, we've that. all kind of caught up on uh, critical race theory or at least heard the phrase, you know, scores of times in the last six months. It seems like something that is uh, really dividing the church right now. And yet I often wonder if we're in a place where people who have never read Karl Marx are outing people as Marxists who have also never read Karl Marx. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, uh, coming from one hell of a feedback, it's a one hell of a feedback loop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, coming from as a Christian at a Harvard Law School, which is maybe in some ways ground zero for critical race theory. Could you maybe help us understand what do we need to know about critical race theory as Christians? And, uh, um, you know, what can we affirm in terms of common grace? But what do we need to be aware of uh, or, or yeah. um, you know, what, what do we need to challenge? Yeah, so I've been dealing with critical race theory for only 30 years. 
<laughs> um, Fantastic. So yeah. if you got a leg up on me there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, well, I, more precisely, uh, as my dad says, the Lord does not bless exaggeration. Only 29 years. Um, okay. <laughs> so, the um, Nuance. So essentially, uh, look, one of the problems with critical race theory is it, it's hard to define critical yeah. race theory because yeah. there are a lot it's a it's a a theory that has a lot of branching uh, networks to it it has a lot of debate within it so that critical race theorists will often fiercely debate each other about what is critical race theory um but a a, a good way to say it is what critical race theory does is it asks you to deconstruct or unpack uh american uh legal realities and cultural from asking uh questions constantly about power and privilege uh who has the power and why who is privileged and why um and to and so essentially what critical critical race theory does is it posits that racism has been just sort of ingrained into america at a almost a level of its dna and so that you as an you don't even need to be an individual racist to benefit from that racism so that's for example the or to be hurt uh, and and you will be hurt by that racism, even if you have been born, you know, more than 100 years, almost 200 years after the end of slavery, coming up on 200 years and 56 years after the end of Jim Crow, so that you can you you can have not you can you can not be a racist and benefit from racism. You can come of age at in 2020 and be a victim of racism. And that one of the things that critical race theory then does is it rejects the classical liberal structures of government of the United States in part because they are imprinted with the DNA of racism. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, because if, if, if the structures are around individual liberty and we've been operating off of that, that assumption, but in order for those structures to work, uh, it has required the lack of individual liberty for an entire group of people. Right. right. Like that's, is that, is that kind of what you're saying in terms of how classical liberalism was built by racists for racists would be sort of the argument. And so gotcha. therefore, uh, if you are a historic, a, a member of a historically marginalized group, you must, you must disrupt key elements of classical liberalism to achieve, achieve true justice. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, well, where to begin? Okay. First, I have learned things from critical race theory. Um, I have. OK, if you are asked to sort of to to walk into and people say this is common sense, this is no, this was not common sense. A lot of this stuff is actually the critical race theorists got people to think along these lines of saying, why is something the way it is? Is there a power dynamic that mm. explains your present situation and has that power dynamic given you a particular privilege that you are perpetuating in a multi-generational way and also a disadvantage that is being perpetuated in a multi-generational way. These are interesting questions to ask yeah. because what they, they ask you to do is f understand the history of your own community and your own society. Okay, I'll give you, I'll make it concrete. This is an example that I use in, in a, a essay triggered a ton of discussion um so the 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 example yeah is i saw that yeah <laughs> oh my gosh the, the example is this i was on the school board and have i've been on the school board of christian schools i have legally advised christian schools a christian school that i was advising was presented with an option of an option of having a police officer in the school 
uh, a student resource officer. And the option was uh, for the purposes of protecting against the school shooting. And initially, almost everyone in the board was like, free cop, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Free security, sure. Uh, and then the headmaster spoke up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. When the there is a police officer in the schools, all of a sudden, all of our discipline is filtered through a law enforcement lens. So X's son, who was caught with a dime bag of weed, is now going to be processed into the criminal justice system as opposed to suspended for three days and put through a spiritual formation training session, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that the headmaster, who is a, in a pastoral position and the parents do to try to take this kid and who's who's got a problem and put him on the right path. Or when, you know, Billy punches Johnny in the face after football practice, that's another suspicion, suspension and a pastoral opportunity and a parenting opportunity. But if the street school resource officer is there, it's a it's an assault. And that what we do not necessarily want are teenage kids being put through having our school discipline essentially criminal put through the criminal justice system. And everyone's yeah. like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Excellent point. There's a microscopic chance of a school shooting, but there's a near certainty of somebody getting booked for assault <laughs> at yeah. some point in the next five years. Mm -hmm. And so we said, no. Now, I think that was the right decision for that school. I'm not questioning whether that was the right decision. But I had, remember, I've had 29 years of critical race theory exposure. And I, all of a sudden, this like little spark went off and said, oh, this is how power and privilege perpetuates itself through society. And then somebody who knows nothing about critical race theory would say, that's insane. But you say, no, wait, hold on. Okay. This is a private school. It's not a public school. Therefore, there wasn't an ability of this, of the, of the government under the law. We had the ability to form our own school system. We had mm. wealth and enough power to form our own independent school system to declare independence from the public schools. We had the legal authority to say no to law enforcement's in presence in our community. That's power. Okay, why did we have that power? Well, and why did and why does the um, the public school down the road uh, not have that power? And what is the composition of the public school down the road? What is the composition of our private school now? Nobody, you know, and, and this composition exists even if every single person in the private school isn't is not just not racist, but affirmatively yeah. anti-racist. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you have this power that you have for historical reasons that where history has influenced the reasons why you have it. Not it's not purely historical, but history has influenced the reasons why you have it. Now, what about privilege? What that then means is because you have that power. Your, your own children have what you might call a little bit of a criming privilege growing up. That They have the privilege to commit crimes in certain instances without being channeled into the criminal justice system. Justice system. This is where you see a lot of this argument that people make about, um, wait a minute, white suburban kids use drugs just as much as inner city black kids, mm. and yet they're not being filtered through the criminal justice system. And so that, that power created a privilege. And that power and that privilege perpetuated what? A division. Mm -hmm. Okay. It, now, nobody's racist in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people said, well, no, it's not a race division. It's a wealth division. Okay. Why does the wealth division exist? So <laughs> some of it is because the folks in that school, uh, the parents in that school work really hard. They work really hard. They're super great, hardworking citizens. Part of it is that they also did benefited from a lot of systems that 
instilled in them a lot of, gave them a lot of advantages. Those two things can be true at the same time without diminishing the work ethic of the individual who's built and created a business. And so that helps you understand why things are the way they are and why things are hard to change. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, and just to your point about like how much I mean, if, if, if cable news and talk radio can, can become a catechesis that, that shapes us spiritually, what effect would recurring, uh, uh, periods within the criminal justice system, how would that shape your, your self-understanding and your identity? If you, if you, if, if a fight is criminalized, well, maybe I may as well just continue doing this because I am a bad person, like categorically. And that is not yeah, that, that just, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. You well, know. you know, and it also colors the way we see people. So like, I might be a dad, let's say my son who I might, I'm not, might be a dad. I am a dad. <laughs> I have three kids. Um, let's say my son slugs somebody at school and, uh, which thankfully has not happened yet. He's a sophomore at UT. Hopefully he's not going to do that at the university <laughs> of Tennessee, but let's say he just cold cocks somebody to, in a fight. And the first thing that goes through my mind is not my son's guilty of assault. It's my son had a fight yeah. and often boys, guys do that and they need to work this out. Okay. Yeah. But then you might hear of another kid from, you know, the, the public school down the road and you hear he was booked for assault. Yeah. You don't think he got, he, he got in a fight. Yeah. You think he, he committed assault. Right. And, and so, um, and so what ends up happening is it also colors our perception of other people. Like, our kids are not like that kid. Yeah. Oh, but maybe, <laughs> maybe they kind of are. Yeah. And then when you have somebody who's like then filtered through a criminal justice system, which is not known for its character formation, um, <laughs> that creates to say problems. The least. Yeah. But that's not to say that critical race theory, while it has some descriptive benefits, mm. has a lot to say prescriptively. And in fact, I think prescriptively is where it really begins to fall down, um, especially in light of the gospel. And, and that's where it people it's important for people to understand that because most strands and people have written to me and say, no, you, you don't get it. You're not getting it. You're not getting it. But I know that many, if not most strands, place racial identity right up there at the top of sort of the hierarchy of identity. Man, one of the things that I've actually been most helped by was the talk you did at Southern Seminary on intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And and I know that these are, are highly related, but that part that seems so antithetical to the gospel uh, seems to be a reduction of flourishing, of relationships, of like what is the good life mm -hmm. to a zero-sum understanding of power. Yes. And, 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 and like... I, I'm just kind of I'm wondering what you think about that, because the, ironically, a lot of the, the people who are um, most critical of any Christians or pastors who are saying that there could be some good in the PCA or in the, not in the PCA, but just in the church. <laughs> There's or, some good in the PCA, too. <laughs> thankfully, um, it's not here. But yeah, um, but like any any OK being OK with that is ironically also a zero sum understanding of power that doesn't allow for use of some of these ideas or concepts in a common grace way mm -hmm. that, like you said, is, is descriptive, but not prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of the prescript, you know, where, where critical race theory really breaks down politically as, uh, so this, the spiritual breakdown of it in many ways to me is this such an emphasis placed on identity. Mm. 
um, when there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female. The, the overwhelming, overarching identity of the believer is in Jesus Christ, period, end of discussion. Mm. It's not to say that in a fallen world, these other identities of black or white, male or female in this fallen world don't become salient. Mm. And they do. They do become salient. And that's one of the things that this pre- the descriptive aspect of critical race theory helps us see. But ultimately, ultimately, the gospel, the gospel fundamentally should readjust our sense of identity in mm. Christ. Um, and the, But the, the other thing, though, is that this zero-sum game is really, really problematic. So, and this is something where I ended up fighting the fruits of critical race theory in court constantly for years. And this was the university speech code. So what the, what the speech code essentially said was, in order to redress historical grievances and power structures, we're going to alter who has the power to define, or we're going to we're going to shape who has the power to define the marketplace of ideas. And if it means that, say, for example, a, a white conservative Christian has fewer free speech rights, that's not just okay. That's a positive good because that will mean that a member of a marginalized community is going to have more free speech rights. And <sighs> and so that's where you began to see this sort of notion that said. Here's this is the attack on on small L liberalism coming into play. What we're going to do is we're going to use the power of the state to disrupt all of these power relationships. And that means taking you, Brad, and making you have less. And you, Bryce, if you're a member of a of a mar- historically marginalized community, giving you more. And I think that that's where it gets extraordinarily device, extraordinarily divisive. Yeah. And it also uh, is disruptive to our fundamental constitutional structure. But that's the point. That's the point. And it's mm. supposed to be disruptive to that constitutional structure. But it's also inconsistent with the line of civil rights thinking and activism for generations in this country, which says that the way to advance from oppression is to extend the benefits of classical liberalism to other communities, not to end classical liberalism, but to extend it. Hmm. That's what Frederick Douglass meant when he was saying the sl- the auction block, the slave auction, couldn't survive free speech. Hmm. Couldn't survive it. Yeah, um, it was that's yeah, what Martin Luther very, King is talking about with the promissory note. Yeah, embedded with the very uh, weapons that would end up dismantling the the entire system. Right. So the the issue of privilege is such a big part of this conversation, and if I can, you know, risk just oversimplifying things, it seems like. At the moment, the progressive response is anytime we see privilege, we're just going to cancel that person. And and the, the conservative uh, kind of response is to say, well, if I have this privilege because I've worked hard, shouldn't I therefore be able to enjoy it? Yeah. And or, or it, to it deny seems, the existence of privilege at all. Well, yeah, exactly. Or, or yeah, which is sort of the exercise of privilege to say, well, this is going to be really muddy. So let's just maybe not even acknowledge the existence of privilege. It seems to me like the Christian you know, gospel response would want to be something more along the lines of we steward privilege for the sake, not just of ourselves, but others. Uh, Brad and I have talked a lot about about freedom and and what Paul and Peter both say about freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Um, So freedom is not something, power is not something, privilege is not something just to enjoy for myself, but to extend to others. And yet that's really complicated. That's that's really 
Uh, (laughs) What does that even look like? And maybe it's easier to just back away from the conversation of privilege altogether. Yeah. So let me start with a simple concept and then we'll get more complicated. So (laughs) perfect. The simple concept is that I think that we have often responded to oppressive political correctness by essentially doing the opposite of what the politically correct wish, as opposed to what just plowing through and discerning truth. Okay. (laughs) So the, the opposite of political correctness is not, or, you know, the truly effective in my view, uh, response to political correctness is, is simply seeking truth. Um, and where political correctness is bad is when it seeks to deny truth. There are times in which a politically correct person is advocating a truth, but perhaps advocating it in an, in an impressive way. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we often want to do is if a politically sort of like the, the super woke says something woke, um, the f- reflex is to deny it. Yeah. It mm-hmm. can't be right because it comes from the super woke. So concepts like white privilege, de- I deny it. You know, I just deny it. Well, maybe the reality is there are some kinds of privileges in this country that are related to race, but it's not as all encompassing an explanation as somebody might say that it is. Mm. I think that's the the true statement and the harder and more complicated statement. But a lot of the argument, I think one of the really tough issues around privilege is it hits our pride a ton. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of us like to sit here and think and say, um, you know, remember the old, it feels like 500 years ago when we used to get really upset about things like you didn't build that in, in uh, when Obama <laughs> said you didn't build that. And and yeah. it was the theme of the RNC. We did build that. And, uh. and so, you, it, well, and the answer is to you didn't build that or we did build that is kind of a little of both. Um, and, and what we end up doing is if like, let's say we've worked super hard, especially, you know, and, and done something remarkable there's a lot of pride wrapped up in that because we know we worked. Mm. We know we took risks. If it's a business, we know we took risks. If you're sure. planting a church, holy smokes, you're walking out there on faith and you're, you know, 20 hour days. And, and so, you know, when, yeah. when you see the fruit being born, you know, you worked for that. And if somebody just says white privilege, it's, you know, number one is demeaning. It, yeah. it, de- it demeans the work that you've actually done. And it also pricks your pride. Yeah. But sometimes I have to ask myself, why do I have the work ethic that I have? Hmm. I didn't select my parents. Yeah. You know, like I didn't say, you know what? The first act as a baby is I'm going to make a very good choice of my parents. Right. And that's good. You know, like I didn't select my parents. What about the economic system under which my business flourished? I didn't create that system. What about the liberty that I enjoyed? Yeah, throughout that process, I didn't create that. We've enjoyed an enormous inheritance, an enormous inheritance in this country. And and some people have greater benefit of that inheritance, and some people have less benefit. And I think Mm. the gap in the benefit of the inheritance is what you would call privilege. And I think it's fine to locate that. I think it's fine to identify that, but it's not fine to define people by that. Yeah. This, man, this connects with a few different things that we've been. What I love about this is, as our being kind of jumping around here, it's really clear how some of these themes are so interwoven throughout, and the contrast that we've been circling around in a lot of ways between a helplessness uh, that leads to uh, a fear and anxiety that that is driving so much of our polarization versus a humility 
that says, you know, I'm not in control, but is grounded and, and leads to a security and a confidence. Um, I can't tell you how many people as a pastor I talk to who very proportionate to the the hidden tribes report yeah. uh, that that talked about the difference between like like the polarization we're experiencing is very much anchored by this kind of like fourteen or twenty six percent depending on which which you know you include in there um, that of just that much of the population is driving so much of the polarization oh. and there's this huge huge swath of people that's like two thirds of the country that they categorize as the exhausted middle and. It feels like that that is a group of people who are experiencing the helplessness, but haven't given over to the fear and anxiety yet yeah. of, of, of the wings. I'm just, I just, I would love for you to speak into like, what do you, what would you say to the exhausted middle who are hearing all of this information that we're talking about in the context of a complete flood of information from all of their news feeds and are just feeling helpless and exhausted? Like what? What do we do with that? And how do we, how do we, in, in some senses, wake up um, our souls to this in a way that is, is, is not, that is actually humble and freed and empowered to love and actually make an impact and a difference? Yeah. You know, I think you start off with a simple message to the members. And another way, phrase that I've heard used to describe these folks is not just the exhausted middle, the exhausted majority. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a very key mm. distinction. And, and why it's key is this first thing I'm going to say. It's you're not alone. You're not mm. alone. You know, a lot of people right now, I, I can't even tell you how many people I talk to where they feel like they say, I, I feel like I don't have a home. I feel alienated and I feel alone. Well, when you have a bunch of people saying, I feel alienated and alone, mm. You know what you've got is you've got a beginning of a, a tribe. <laughs> yeah. you've, you've, you've got a beginning of a group. And and I think that one of the, the animating things that we need to do to stop the, the divisiveness of the edges is to make it to where the operative word in the phrase exhausted majority is not is no longer exhausted, but rather majority. Mm-hmm. And and I think that will have will have a leavening effect on American discourse because right now it is our discourse is so dominated by these edges, by the political hobbyists, by the people who consume partisan media, that quite frankly, large numbers of people, and they might be very conservative. I'm really conservative, um, but I am not willing to hate my enemies. <laughs> I'm not willing to turn my back on our classical liberal structure, and I'm I'm not willing to view my fellow citizens on the other side, and it's anything others, human beings created in the image of God, including people I love and can learn from. But the, the, the reality is we have an awful lot of people who are interacting in social media, interacting in their communities, and they just don't want to deal with it, right? They have seen what happens when mm. you speak up. Yeah. They have seen what happens mm. when you say, maybe you've gone, you're going too far, or maybe you know they've seen what happens. And so essentially what they've done is they've kind of seeded the ground. Um, mm. and they've retreated from the field. And what I say to these folks is you don't have to become them, meaning the, the angry wings, to defeat them. And I mean defeat in the sense of culturally and politically. I don't mean sure. in the sense of crush them, but to uh, end the primacy of the angry voice. You don't have to be the angry voice. And and I what I and what I would also say is in that environment, the voice that is not angry is often seen as almost like 
an oasis in the desert. Hmm. Um, it's it's often seen as oh, at last, at last, I can you know kind of feel free to to talk and to think, hmm. and it's a relief. Um, yeah. You know, hmm. one of the things I hate, you know, I, it's easy to caricature the safe space language because you know the way that universities do it yeah. is is ridiculous often and easy to caricature and all of that. Stuff. But I think of it like this. I want to be a walking safe space for engagement. Like that that's what I want to be. And I'm not perfect at it. I can get angry, but I want to be a a place where a human being can come to me and have a conversation uh, even about in total opposition to me and that we're going to have that conversation and we're going to we're going to have it on and as much as I can and I'm not again, I'm not always perfect about this. Sure. Never perfect about it, but as much as I, as I can to have that conversation, to have it in an ad, uh, atmosphere of respect. And, and I think that, and, and that, but not be yielding in my convictions unless I've been convinced that I'm wrong. In other words, not be intimidated out of my convictions. And so I think that walking into the public square from that standpoint, this is, I'm trying to be, I want to, if I want more civility and decency in politics, I got to set that tone. Hmm. If I want people to be open to other ideas, I have to be open to other ideas. Hmm. That's what I mean by sort of a walking safe space of engagement. I'm going to do my best as a fallen person um, to model the values I want to advance in society and to do it with courage and conviction when the time requires it. Hmm. Um, And thankfully in this country, honestly, modeling and living out your politics doesn't always require very much courage at all. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 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 That, it, it, the, the, once again, the, you just brought us back full circle to an identity that is rooted in something that transcends the political squabbling, that is secure in Christ, a dignity, value, and worth that is not dependent on your tribe winning, but the kingdom being moved forward by the king means that mm-hmm. you can both not give into the fear and anxiety, and you're actually empowered to be involved in the institutions and the spheres of influence that you have without feeling like you have to be the one to fix it all. So, right. Man, David, thank you so much for all of this. Thank you for being a sane voice in the wilderness Um, and for everything you're doing and modeling what we've been talking about at the dispatch through your book, your online engagement. It is truly a breath of fresh air and we are learning from you in more ways than one. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, David. If you're interested in hearing more from David French, be sure to pick up his latest book, Divided We Fall, wherever you like to buy books. David also writes columns several times a week at The Dispatch, where you can also find his podcast. If you're new here, thanks so much for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe because next week, Brad and I are talking with Australian pastor and author Mark Sayers, getting his input on the way the global system has been disrupted this year and how that actually presents a unique opportunity for the church. Mark is incredibly insightful, and he was really the inspiration for Brad and I to start this podcast. So we couldn't be more excited to bring you this conversation with Mark Sayers himself. You can subscribe to Everything Just Changed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out our website, kingandkingdom.community, where you can engage with Brad and myself, as well as get additional resources. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. 
and our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week with Mark Sayers helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed. <laughs>